Well, hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are joining us. Besides you guys here on site, we have people from all over the country, all over the 918 that are joining us online. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome in our online family. So excited to have you guys join us as well. And if you've been worshiping with us for the past few weeks, you know we're in a series right now which we're calling Catch the Wind. And the reason why we're calling our series this is because over and over again in Scripture, we see that God uses the illustration of wind to describe how His Spirit works in this world, how His Spirit works in our lives. One of those famous examples comes in John chapter 3 when Jesus is speaking to a man named Nicodemus, and He's talking about how God's Spirit works in our lives. And look at what He says. He says, the the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, the wind is one of the few things in life that we understand as both tangible and non-physical at the same time. Can't really touch it or grab it, but you know it's there. No one denies its existence. You can feel it. You can see its effects and its power and its influence all around you. Kind of like this video I came across a while back of this little boy who was trying to take out the trash. If you want to go ahead and show it, you can see he's really struggling. And the reason why he's struggling is because he's fighting the wind here. The wind is up that day, and it's making his task really, really difficult. Now, this little fella, he can't grab the wind or touch the wind, but he doesn't doubt that it's there. He knows for sure that it's there, and you can see that the wind is just getting the best of him time and time again. And I don't know if his parents are filming this on their phone. I hope not. I hope there's like a security camera or something that they're capturing all this on, but the wind just continues to get the best of him. And like I said, he can't really touch the wind. He can't feel it, but he definitely doesn't doubt its existence. He can see its effects, its power, its influence all around him. I feel sorry for that little guy. I really do. Now, that's not how we as followers of Jesus are supposed to respond to the wind. We're, to, we're supposed to relate to it in a very different way. Instead of fighting against the wind, we're supposed to catch it. We're supposed to catch God's Spirit in the sense of we are to stay in step with God's Spirit. We're to move as He moves, go where He wants us to go, say what He would say, see what He sees in this world. And Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 5. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, when we keep in step with God's Spirit, he will empower us, He will drive us, and He will take us where we couldn't go on our own. That's why we've been using the illustration of a sailboat in this series. Because a sailboat, if you raise the sails and position the sails just right, then those sails will catch the wind, and the wind will propel the boat to go where it could not go on its own. And this is what God wants to do for our lives as well. He wants to take us to a destination we could not go on our own. But when we allow Him to be the power of our lives, the driving force of our lives, He will take us where we could not go with our own abilities and talents and gifts. Last week, we used illustration of a kite. And you guys know in order for a kite to function properly, to fulfill its purpose, it needs what? It needs wind. Because you can have the best design kite and the best looking kite, but without wind, a kite will never really soar. The same is true for our lives. The same is true for our church. We will never reach our full potential unless God is empowering us. That's why in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says this, put all your trust in the Lord and do not rely on your own understanding. In other words, don't try to live of life according to your own rules. Don't try to plan out your life just on your own. Don't do it by yourself. Instead, at every step, 
you take. Keep him, keep God in mind, and he will direct your path. In other words, keep God, keep God on your mind as you take every step in life. Let him guide you, and he will direct your life. He will take you where you couldn't go on your own. You will live the life that he created you, he designed you to live. But in order for that to happen, there's a key word in this passage, and it's the word trust. We have to be willing to trust him. See, part of catching the wind is trusting that God will lead us wherever he wants to lead us. We're trusting him to do just that because sometimes God is going to take us into uncharted territory. Sometimes God's going to take us into the unknown. Sometimes God's going to take us to unfamiliar places. And that can be a little scary at first. It can also be a little risky. But we have to know God is in control. He knows more than we do. He has our best interests at heart. So wherever he takes us, we trust him. We trust that he is going to lead us to something better, that he has an ultimate plan that he's trying to fulfill, and he wants to use us as part of that plan. See, if we're going to catch the wind, this has to be our attitude. We've got to be able to say, God, I trust you with what's next, whatever that is. God, I trust you with what's next. I'm ready for the fresh wind you want to blow in our midst. I'm ready for the fresh wind that you want to blow in my life. And I believe the early church, they got this. They understood this. And that's why as you look at the church in the first few decades of its existence, which is recorded in the book of Acts in the New Testament, you see that the church was an unstoppable force. In spite of persecution, in spite of hardships, in spite of intimidation, the church continued to grow and prosper. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, literally spread all over the Roman Empire, all over the known world. And the reason why the church was unstoppable was because it was dependent on and driven by God's Spirit. It wasn't because they had the best plans or because they had the most talented people. The church continued to grow and spread in the first century world because they let God direct their lives, and they went where God wanted them to go. Even if God said, hey, you're going in the wrong direction, you need to pivot, you need to change, they were willing to do that even if it was uncharted territory, even if it was into the unknown, because they trusted where God would take them. If you grew up in the country, you probably grew up seeing these. Anybody know what this is? It's a weather vane. And so for years, for generations, farmers, ranchers use these to help predict the wind, predict the weather. Because these things will tell you uh, which way the wind is blowing, the power of the wind, the direction, the volume of the wind, all that good stuff. And it will let you know when the weather conditions change. Now this one right here is more used for decoration. This is one you might put in a garden. But you would see them for years on the top of a house or top of a barn on the roof. Because these were valuable instruments so that you could know the optimum time for doing certain farming practices because every good rancher every good farmer knows the wind can change in an instant weather conditions can change like that and you have to be prepared for that you have to be ready for that and so let me ask you is that how you treat God's spirit when you're going in one direction and your plans are made and you think that this is what's best, and all of a sudden God says, no, 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 I want you to change direction. I want you to go that way instead. Are you ready, friend, to tell you that? Are you ready to change gears, change directions? Are you ready to go into the unknown, into uncharted territory, because that's where he wants you to go? Because that's what God is asking of us. 
He wants for us to trust him to the point that we're willing to go wherever he wants us to go, even if that means we have to make a last-second pivot, even if that makes we have to change our course, the course that we've been taking. We have to be able to say with total confidence, God, I trust you with what's next. And if there was ever anyone in Scripture who had that mindset, God, I trust you with what's next, it was a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. And God used Paul in phenomenal ways. See, like I said, we're studying the book of Acts, and we left off last week in Acts chapter 10 on into 11 when the first Gentile family is converted. Because remember, Jesus said, I want my good news to go out to the entire world, to all people groups everywhere. So not just the Jewish nation, but all nations. And so the first Gentile family is converted in Acts chapter 10, and from that point on, the church becomes a global movement. It's not just isolated in Judea or Jerusalem anymore. It spreads throughout the world. And one of the reasons why it spread throughout the world was because God used this guy named Paul. Now before he went by Paul, he went by another name. He went by the name Saul. He was Saul from Tarsus. And Saul was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish leader who hated the church. He was anti-Jesus, so much so that he attacked Christians. He persecuted the church. He was even guilty of taking the lives of certain Christians. Paul was anti-church, anti-Jesus back when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. But then Jesus got a hold of him. And when Jesus got a hold of him, he started following Jesus, and Jesus changed his entire life. He started to go by the name Paul, and God used him in phenomenal ways. God used him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the primary spokesperson to the Gentiles to go out and tell people throughout the world about Jesus who had never heard of Jesus, and for that matter, some of them had never heard of the one true God. And so, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, we see that Paul is sent out on the first ever official missionary journey. Paul goes into lands who've never heard of Jesus to people who have never heard of the one true God, and he tells them about God. He tells them about who the Messiah, the Savior of the world is, Jesus Christ. And Paul has phenomenal success on his first missionary journey. Tons of people come to know Jesus. Tons of churches are started, and God uses Paul in ways like he never thought possible. So after this missionary journey, which takes three or four years or so, Paul then comes back with his traveling companions, his missionary companions, to the church that sent him out, the church that was located in the city of Antioch, and there he gives a report of all that God had done through them. And listen to what the scripture says. It says, on arriving there, back in Antioch, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. Notice who did the work. God. God did it through them and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Who does Paul give the credit to for all this ministry success they've had? He gives all the credit to God. And he said, the reason why we were able to reach all these people, the reason why we were able to start all these churches is because God opened the door and we walked through it. In other words, the wind was blowing and we caught the wind. We give God all the credit. And so Paul stays at Antioch for a little while. He rests, and then he's ready to go back out. He's ready to go into other lands to reach other people groups who've never heard about God, who don't know who Jesus is. He's ready to go. And so Paul targets this one area, the province known as Asia in this day, and he wants to go to the province of Asia and minister to those people, tell those people about Jesus, because 
Asia doesn't know Jesus. There are no churches in Asia, and Asia needs Jesus. And there are a ton of people, a lot of people who live in Asia. So Paul's ready to go. He's got his plans laid out. He's ready to go with his missionary team to go and preach these people living in the province of Asia. And look at what the Bible says. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Kept by, kept from, stopped from preaching the gospel in Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now that's interesting. If you're Paul, you're probably a little bit confused here. You might be thinking, God, am I getting mixed signals here or what? Mixed messages here or what? Because didn't Jesus say go into all the world? Didn't Jesus say reach all people groups? There's a whole people group living in Asia who don't know about Jesus. I need to go to them. That's what Paul wants to do. That's what he believes God wants him to do. And yet, he tries to go to Asia and shut door. The Spirit of God tells him no. Now, we're not sure how the Spirit of God told him no. Maybe it was in a vision or a dream. The Bible doesn't say that. I think if it was a vision or a dream, it would tell us, because later on, Paul does get a vision. We're going to look at that, and it tells us he had a vision. I just think maybe the circumstances weren't right. They tried, and they tried, and they tried. It was shut door after shut door after shut door. So Paul gets the clear message, okay? Asia's not right, so let's go to Bithynia. Bithynia is a little area on the outside of Asia. It's not quite in Asia. We can go to those people. There's a ton of people that live there, and they need Jesus too. So he decides to go to Bithynia, and what does the Bible say? We just read it. The Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Another shut door. Now, again, we don't know how God told Paul no time and time again here, but we know one thing. Paul got a clear no before he clearly knew what God wanted him to do next. Paul got shut door after shut door after shut door before he ever saw an open door. And if you were Paul in this situation, how would you feel? How would you react? Would you say, well, God, I tried. I mean, hey, you said go into all the world. I'm, I targeted this area that needs to know Jesus. I tried. So I'm done. Or maybe you wouldn't quit, but just be really discouraged and down, maybe even depressed, like... You know, maybe God doesn't want to use me. Maybe you think there's somebody better for the job. Maybe you would just want to give up. I don't know. But that's not Paul. Paul doesn't give up. Instead, he keeps on going. Because Paul understands that catching the wind requires us having an open agenda. Because we need to know that God knows more than we do. We need to keep that in mind. God knows something we don't know. And oftentimes the reason why God gives us a no is because he knows something we don't know. Let me put it this way. We've got to trust the doors that God shuts as much as we trust the doors God opens. Because when God tells us no, there's a reason for that. When God shuts the door, there's a reason for that. The reason why God tells us no is because he knows something that we don't know. And that's what we find out happens as we read on in Acts chapter 16. It says in verse 8, So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So basically, Paul, after he gets these shut doors, gets a vision from God, and the vision says, I want you to go to Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is what we would call today modern-day Europe. That's Europe. Paul's thinking Asia. God's thinking Europe. And so God's telling him, I want you to go west. See, up until this point, the gospel had been centered in Jerusalem, Judea, and that area. And even on their first missionary trip, they stayed kind of in the eastern part of the empire. And what God is saying to Paul is, go west, young Paul, go west. I want you to go west and preach to those people there. Now, it's not that God didn't want Asia receiving the gospel or knowing about Jesus. Asia will receive the gospel. God will send people to tell the people living in Asia about his son. And there will be great growth throughout Asia. But now wasn't the time. In order for the gospel to have the most influence, the best bang for its buck, basically, to spread the fastest, it needed to go west first. Paul needed to go to Macedonia. And Paul was the guy for the job because of his background, because of his experiences, because of his abilities. God could use him in a powerful way. And God knew that if Paul went west, the gospel would spread like wildfire. And that's exactly what happens. Paul has immediate success when he goes west because he caught the wind. But not only that, what's really cool is, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, after Paul's third missionary journey, when you get to the very end of the book of Acts, Paul ends up going to Rome. Rome was far, far west, at least from where Paul was. Rome was almost on the other side of the world, it seemed like. And it was in the west. It was the capital city of the empire. And Paul eventually gets to Rome. It takes him forever to get to Rome. But he eventually gets to Rome, the capital city of the empire. And when he arrives, you know what he finds? There are already Christians there. There's already a church in Rome before Paul ever gets there. Because the gospel spread like wildfire. The gospel beat Paul to Rome. See, that's why God wanted Paul to go West wanted the gospel to go west first. And so that's what happens. And this reminds me of a key truth. It reminds me that sometimes we have to pass by our plans to live out God's purposes. Sometimes we have to pass by our well-intentioned plans, well-thought-out plans in order to get to God's purposes. That's what Paul does. He abandons his plans in order to go where God wanted him to go, and God used it in incredible, God used him in incredible ways. And so he goes to Macedonia, and he ends up landing in this city called Philippi. Philippi was a large city. It was huge, huge population base, ton of people living there. But here's the thing. Even though a ton of people lived in Philippi, it was a godless city, well, at least godless when it comes to the one true God. There, were, there weren't even that many Jews living there. I mean, there weren't even enough Jews there for them to have a proper synagogue. You had to have so many men in order to form a proper synagogue. There weren't even enough men, Jewish men, living in this large city for them to form a synagogue. And so you know what Paul does? He gets there, and he goes down to the river on the Sabbath, and he finds some women praying, some Jewish women praying. Because, again, they don't have a synagogue to meet at. And he finds these handful of Jewish women praying, and he says, I'm going to start with them. They already know who the one true God is. Let me let them know who his Messiah is, who his son is. And so Paul starts to preach to them, teach them about Jesus. And one of the women listening, she was cut to the heart. Her name was Lydia. She was a dealer of purple, a seller of purple, which meant she was probably pretty wealthy. We find out later she had a pretty large home. And Paul preaches to her. She gets it. 
And she wants to accept Jesus. And look at what the scripture says. The scripture says in verse 15, she, speaking of Lydia, and the members of her household were baptized. Now, why were they baptized? Remember back in Acts 2.38, we talked about that earlier in this series. Somebody is baptized for two reasons, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, somebody is baptized so that God can clean their life through Jesus, and then God can come in and live within them. His Spirit can take up residence in their life and their heart. So Lydia and her family, they're baptized. They're declared clean before God. Their sins are forgiven. And now God's spirit is living in them. And Lydia and her family, they open up their home for Paul to use as kind of his home base in Philippi. And so I want you to get this. The first church in Europe started in the home of a woman named Lydia. How cool is that? And Paul continues to have major success as he ministers from Lydia's home, he and his companions. One of his companions was named Silas. And Paul and Silas did incredible work in this city. And this just reminds me, God only tells us no because his yes is better. And this is a truth that I'm reminded of whenever I'm around my kids. Because I tell my kids no a lot. I'm not sure if you're like that as a parent, but I tell my kids no a whole lot. And most of the time, I tell them no, not because I'm mean, but I tell them no because I know better than them, right? I mean, I'm an adult. I've lived a little bit longer than them. I'm kind of an adult, but still, I've lived a little bit longer than them. I have more life experience than them, and I know what's best for them most of the time. And so when I tell them no, I'm not being mean, I just want something better for them. The other night I was hanging out with my kids. Allison was with some of the ladies in our church and she was having a craft night or one of those things that ladies do. But anyway, she was hanging out with some ladies from our church and so I had the kids and we were having fun and I brought them out to the church, to our church building. I do that sometimes because we like to come out here and play hide and seek and all sorts of stuff. I hope that's okay. I never asked somebody permission to do that. But anyway, we come out here and we play sometimes and we have fun when there's no one else here. So I took them over to our church offices, and they love going to daddy's office. Not because they love being in daddy's office, but because my assistant, whose office is right outside of mine, she has a candy dish, and they love hitting that candy dish, and they will get a handful sometimes. I got to tell them to put some back because they get too much, and so sure enough, they went straight for that candy dish, got them a handful, and I was like, no, no, you can have one piece of piece, and that's it. And they looked at me like I was the most evil, wicked person on the face of the planet. I mean, they just looked at me like I had just taken every toy away from them and they started to whine and complain no daddy we want more but what they didn't know was I already had plans I told Allison after we left the church property I was then going to take them to go get ice cream at their favorite ice cream place and I didn't want them them to have too many sweets so I was like no just have one piece of candy a piece and they were upset but they took their one piece of candy we got in the car they're still mad I mean their arms are crossed they're pouting you know they're all furious at me and so we take off and as we're driving down the road I said guys there's a reason why I didn't want you to have too much candy because I'm going to take you to go get your favorite ice cream. Well, immediately they started to cheer and scream, and they were all excited. And Alex even said these words, Daddy, I will never argue with you again. Now, I know that's not true. He's already argued with me since that day, but I know that's not true. But in that moment, he understood Daddy had something better planned for him. And that's why we need to treat God too. When God tells us no, it's not because he's being mean. When God shuts the door, it's not because we don't matter to him. It's because he has something better in store for us. Now, to get to that better is not always easy. Just because God has something better for us doesn't mean it's just going to be candy and ice cream along the way. (laughs) 
lot of times the journey to better is difficult because the moment that we start to catch the wind, Satan is right there to try to stop us. Satan is right there to try to distract us or tempt us. And what we need to understand is catching the wind doesn't mean the journey will be easy. In fact, the Bible tells us this plainly. In 2 Timothy, listen to what Paul writes. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say they might experience persecution or they could experience persecution. It says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to catch the wind, if you're going to go in the direction God wants you to go in, you're going to face opposition. And here's what I tell people. If you are not regularly facing opposition from Satan, you might just be going in the same direction he's going in. See, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to face opposition. We have to be prepared for that. And that's exactly what happens to Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They're ministering in Philippi. And they're having great success, and they come across this slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. And the Bible tells us that this evil spirit that possessed this slave girl gave her a special ability. This slave girl was able to predict the future, to tell people's fortunes. And this wasn't a trick or just, she wasn't just fooling people. The Bible says she actually had this ability. So people from all over came to get their fortunes told by this slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. And guess what? Her owners, remember she's a slave, her slave owners made a ton of money off her. Because people from all over would come to get their fortunes told, and her owners made a ton of money off her. So Paul and Silas relieved this girl of the evil spirit that's possessing her. They cast the evil spirit out of her, and when they do, they unplug her psychic hotline. She's not able to tell the future anymore, and her owners get mad. They're ticked. Do you know why? You guys know this. When you mess with people's pocketbooks, they get really upset. When you put a pinch on people's pocketbooks, they get really, really upset. And her owners are ticked. The Bible says this. The Bible says that when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. And they tell the authorities that Paul and Silas are enemies of Rome and that they're troublemakers for their civilization. And basically, Paul and Silas... Well, they get into some trouble, and this is their punishment. Look at what the Bible says. It says that the magistrates ordered them, Paul and Silas, to be stripped, how embarrassing, and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So I want you to wrap your minds around what Paul and Silas are experiencing here. They are arrested, they're stripped of their clothes, they're beaten, they're flogged, then they're put in stocks, and they're left overnight in a Roman prison cell, a dirty, dark dungeon of a prison cell, an unsanitary place. And why were they in this position? How do they end up there? All because they did what God wanted them to do. Remember, they wanted to go to Asia. And then they were willing to even pivot and go to Bithynia. And God said, no, no, no. I want you to go to Macedonia. So they do what God says. They go to Macedonia. What's the result? 
They're arrested, stripped, beaten, flogged, put in stocks, and left in a Roman dungeon of a prison cell overnight. And I want you to understand what Paul and Silas went through was no small physical ordeal. Just flogging alone was brutal. See, flogging consisted of being whipped with a contraption known as the cat of nine tails. It was a special whip that had nine leather straps on it, and embedded within these leather straps were pieces of bone and rock and metal, sharp objects. You'd have two Roman soldiers, one who would stand on each side, they would tie you up, and on your backside they would whip you, starting at your shoulder blades, going down to your calf muscles. And they wouldn't just hit you with these whips. They would let the pieces of rock and metal and bone sink into your skin, and then they would tear your skin. They would pull those whips, literally tearing your backside open, filleting your flesh, exposing your spine. According to one Roman historian, six out of ten men in the ancient world did not survive flogging. And those who did survive it were left marred, physically disabled for life. That's what Paul and Silas had to endure. And then after they experienced flogging, the Bible says they were put in stocks, which meant they had their arms and their legs stretched as far apart as they could be to the point of excruciating pain, and they were experiencing the stretching right after they had been flogged. And they were left overnight in a dirty, unsanitary, dark, dingy prison cell. And it's from that position from that position of pain and suffering that we read the next verse. About midnight, the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Beat up, flogged, placed in stocks, mocked, ridiculed, in a dark, dirty prison cell. From that position, in that state, in that place, at that time, what would make you want to sing? I understand praying. I mean, we would all be praying, God, deliver me from this. But what would make them want to sing? Sing praises to God. In that spot, in that situation, what would make them want to sing? What would lead them to sing in a situation like that? The answer is simple but profound. Jesus. See, Paul and Silas, they actually believed in this Jesus they had been preaching about. This Jesus was real to them. Jesus wasn't just a nice idea or a concept. Jesus wasn't some family tradition they followed or some religious tradition they followed. Jesus wasn't a nice pastime or a hobby. Jesus was real. They believed in the cross. They believed in the empty tomb. They believed in the resurrection. And they believed that Jesus had come to bring them new life, life that they did not deserve. They believed that Jesus 
could bring them hope, hope that went beyond this world, peace that passed understanding. They believed that what they were seeing around them was not all that there was, that a better day was coming when they would be reunited with their God. And this relationship that they now had with God because of what Jesus did for them was worth absolutely everything. And they would rather be locked up and beaten up in a Roman prison cell than be on the outside and not have Jesus. For Paul and Silas, they were willing to endure whatever they had to endure because Jesus was worth it. Robert Fulgram is a Christian minister, and he wrote a book several years ago, and in this book he describes a wedding ceremony that he did one time. He said it was the biggest wedding ceremony he had ever officiated. He said it was just incredible. There were 24 bridesmaids, 24 groomsmen. That's how big this wedding party was. It was an 18-piece brass ensemble, and everything was decorated to the hilt. Everything was just so elaborate. There was tons of money spent on this wedding. And everything was going fine until the bride had to wait to enter the auditorium and come down the aisle. She was a little bit nervous. And he describes in his book what happened. I'm just going to read it for you. He says, all the bride... She had been dressed for hours, if not days, and there wasn't an ounce of adrenaline left in her body. While she was waiting with her dad outside, she walked along the reception food tables full of gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled first the little pink and yellow mints. Then she picked through the bowls of mixed nuts, followed by a cheese ball or two, some black olives, a handful of glazed almonds, sausages with those frilly little toothpicks, a couple of shrimps blanketed in, in bacon, and a cracker piled with liver pate. And to wash it all down, a glass of pink champagne, her dad gave it to her to calm her nerves. As the door to the auditorium opened and the bride stood in the doorway, what you noticed was not her white dress, but her white face. For what was coming down the aisle was not a bride, but a living grenade with a pin pulled out of it. Just as she walked by her mother, she began to wobble and wobble, swaying back and forth. And just then, she lost everything. The bride threw up. And I don't mean a polite ladylike herb into a handkerchief. There's just no nice way to put it. She hosed the front pew of the church only turning to hit two bridesmaids, the groom, the ring bearer, and me, the preacher. Only two people were seen smiling at the end. One was the mother of the groom, <laughs> and the other was the father of the bride. But Robert Fulgram goes on to say that they videoed the entire thing. And every single year on their anniversary, the couple would get back together with as many people who were part of that wedding as they could, and they would re-watch that ceremony again. Now why in the world would you go back year after year and watch that disaster of a ceremony over and over again? Because in the end, the bride still gets the groom. As bad as it was, they still got married. And in the end, the bride still got her groom. Guys, we as the church are called in Scripture the bride of Christ. And no matter what we experience on this earth, no matter what we have to deal with, no matter what persecution we face or hardships we're up against, in the end, the bride still gets the groom. In the end, 
We have the hope of spending all eternity with God and nothing can take that hope from us. And that's why Paul and Silas were able to sing in the midst of the situation that they were in because in the end, the bride gets the groom. And it allowed them to keep going even in the midst of their pain. See, Paul and Silas knew that their relationship with God was worth whatever he asked them to do. And when you catch the wind like that, people notice. It says that the other prisoners who were with them, they noticed. They were listening to Paul and Silas. But apparently the Philippian jailer, he noticed too before he fell asleep. It says he fell asleep, but before he fell asleep, apparently he was listening too. Because God sends this earthquake, and basically what happens is the chains come loose within the prison cells, and the doors fly open, and the jailer, he wakes up realizing that the doors to the prison cells are wide open, and you know what he does? He thinks everybody has escaped, and so he goes and he grabs his sword, and he's getting ready to turn his sword on himself. He's getting ready to take his own life, kill himself, because he knows that once Rome finds out all of his prisoners escaped, they're going to kill him anyway. So he gets ready to take his own life, and just as he's getting ready to turn his own sword on himself, Paul yells out, and Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're still all here. And the Bible says, this is why I think the jailer was listening, the Bible says that the jailer runs and falls down in front of Paul, and he says, tell me what I need to do to be saved. Tell me about this Jesus you've been singing about. I want to have what you have. And listen to what Acts tells us. It says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. Why are you baptized? Acts 2.38. To make yourself clean before God, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling gift of God's spirit. This crusty old Roman jailer instead of taking his life, ends up surrendering his life to Jesus. And it all happened because Paul and Silas didn't give up on God, didn't complain about their circumstances, didn't say, God, why have you put us here? But instead, Paul and Silas had this attitude, God, I trust you with what's next. And maybe, just maybe, God knew that the only thing that could melt the heart of that crusty old Roman jailer were two men who were beaten up and locked up but were more free than what he had ever been. See, that's what we have to offer the world. 2020 has been a crazy year, and we don't know what's coming next. People are worried about the election, and they're worried about the sickness and the virus and our social conditions. They're worried about so much stuff, and I get it. I understand it. And I have no idea what's coming next. I can't tell the future. I have no idea what's next. But I know one thing. No matter what happens next, Jesus is still on the throne. And in the end, the bride gets her groom. And so I just challenge you today, catch the wind. Go wherever God wants you to go. Because we have the promise that we will be victorious with Jesus in the end. And no matter what we deal with, no matter what we face, Jesus is on the throne. We're going to have a time of communion here. And as we do, and you take the elements, the ushers will dismiss you by row like they always do. If you're here, if you're at home, you can go ahead and get your elements together.
But as you partake of the body and the blood of Jesus, in that moment as you're thinking about today and tomorrow and the future and everything you have to deal with, I just want you to say this prayer, God, I trust you with what's next. Because of the empty tomb, we have hope even in the midst of hopelessness. So let's trust God with what's next and let's be the people he is asking us, calling us to be. But today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never been baptized into Christ like the Philippian jailer and his family and Lydia and her family, don't wait. Do it today. Make it happen and be made clean before God and let God's spirit come and live in your life. Catch the wind. And you can have that hope that we've been celebrating. If you want to make that decision today, if you're online, you can get on our hub and talk to one of our staff members there on our online hub. But if you're here in the room today, I'm going to be down front over on this side with some other staff members. If you want to come talk to us while everybody else is taking communion, come do that or come talk to us after the service. We'd love to tell you how to have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know what 2020, what the rest of 2020 will hold, but I know one thing. Jesus is on the throne and the bride still gets her groom. Let's keep that in mind as we move forward together as his church. Let's trust God with whatever comes next. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today, and I thank you for this opportunity we've had to open up your word and study it, and I pray that our response to you, our response would be that of Paul and Silas. God, we'll go wherever you want us to go. Even if you shut doors, we trust you. We're waiting for the next open door that you provide for us to walk through. God, we will go wherever you want us to go. Or today, maybe there's someone who's listening to this message who's never accepted Jesus. May they have the response of Lydia and her household or the jailer and his household. May we say, God, we want to know what we need to do to be saved. We want to catch the wind and have your spirit living in us. Today, I just pray that together as a church, we will be who you are calling us to be. In the name of Jesus, the one who died for our sins and rose again, I pray. Amen.